Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Nikki. And you're joining us for the New Statesman podcast, where this week we're going to talk about what's happening in US politics, because Nikki Wolf is our US editor. And we'll also be talking about what's annoying us this week. Spoiler alert, there are quite a lot of things. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Nikki Wolf, our new US editor, is joining us this week because Stephen is actually on holiday. I, I would like to clarify I wasn't on holiday last week when Stephen claimed that I was. I was on a work trip um, to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. But he is in glorious St. Ives, uh, posting lots of photos of himself on Instagram with crabs. No, no, <laughs> you didn't. I didn't say that. That didn't happen. Nikki, I wanted you to join us because I don't know if you noticed, but some some bad stuff is happening in America and some good stuff too. Okay, let's well let's talk about the good stuff first because I think that's probably the, maybe might cheer me up slightly. So there appears to be a blue wave of uh, left wing Democrats coming to right. the, the New York primaries, and New York being Democrats, not a huge surprise. It's a bit like London being Labour, but the Socialist Party of America, Socialist, Socialist Democratic Party of America. Right. Their candidate, who I think is 28 years old, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, I hope I've got the pronunciation right, won in a big upset against kind of party boss Democrat who was very status quo and kind of old school. And there's a, very much a kind of hopey, changey feeling in the air in, in New York. And uh, you've also got um, Sex and the City actress Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon, Nixon, who has running. turned out to be, in many ways, the best of Sex and the City's cast. Yeah. Although Kim Cattrall, I did see at the opening of Nina Rain's Consent a couple of weeks, so she's looking great. I can't speak for the other two. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what the other two are up to. No, Sarah Jessica Parker went into producing stuff, and then I can't remember the woman who, who plays Charlotte's name because it's been, well, yeah, it's been a while. I, and I need to rewatch Sex and the City, although I, I hear it's now problematic. But then everything from the 90s. Everything's pretty problematic. The 90s were problematic. and Friends is quite problematic. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, anyway, let's not get get diverted to that. But what I thought was interesting is that Media Sands written his column about ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, which is the one that's coming for a lot of heavy criticism this week for separating children from their families, for keeping them in detention centres that, you know, actually do have, I mean, they they are cages because they do have chain link fences and and tops on them. Uh, And he pointed out, you know, the fact that progressive darling Bernie Sanders has actually weirdly been kind of left behind on this one, because he he pointedly refused to condemn ICE, whereas Kamala Harris, who's often spoken of as a Democratic presidential nominee next time round, has moved her position quite significantly from March to saying, actually, you know, from being a kind of, I guess, in that kind of classic, you know, Labour Party move way of kind of saying, no, we need to be quite tough on immigration. People need to know that going to go, 
actually, you're right. When it gets to literally ripping nine-month-old babies away from their mothers, that's the point at which I think we should probably be willing to say that's not being tough on immigration. That's proto-fascism. Mm. So I suppose that the two sides of that story are that we there are you know, appalling things happening in the name of immigration enforcement, both in America and, as it turns out, in Britain, but that the tide has slightly changed and, and, and politicians are feeling increasingly empowered not to mention the Overton window, which I think is a banned phrase in this uh, <laughs> in this office. But um, Trump's coming over, isn't he? Uh, in theory, I, I'm still only about 50-50 as to whether this visit's going to happen. Because Why? He, knows he cancels things at the last minute all the time if he suddenly decides he doesn't want to do them. Um, do you and know I what? Think... I think that might be the only thing that I admire about Donald Trump. You know how great it is when you just when or how brilliant it is when someone cancels on you at the last minute when you really didn't want to meet them. Yeah, I and mean, certainly that would be the most relief Theresa May has ever felt for anyone cancelling on her. Yeah, but I think there, there's a possibility that if Trump sees huge protests planned, if he's going to get snubbed by the Queen, although the Queen does seem to have scheduled a meeting with him now. The utmost reluctance. I think they put them in Windsor, haven't they? On the basis that the more they can keep him out of central London, away from people mm. mooning at him, the better. But the way the way to deal with Trump, as uh, places like Saudi Arabia have really cottoned onto very early on, and China did this as well when he visited, is to roll out the red carpet and give him as much pomp and circumstance as he can possibly get. That's a lot easier to do in an authoritarian regime where people are literally in fear that they might be, you know, shot or yeah. sacked, right? Whereas the, the problem is that if you tell a load of Londoners to be really nice to Donald Trump, that's kind of just going to. I think someone's hired a huge inflatable blimp of like a giant orange baby. <laughs> They were crowdfunding to fly over London. You know, it's one of the one of the joys of living in in Britain, I guess. But um, but I, I suppose we've got a we've got not just a queen, but really we've got the, the queen. queen, very much the the, the the world, the OG queen. Yeah. So that presumably he'll like that. Yeah, and I think he he respects that sort of personality, not necessarily personality in, in terms of a specific personality type, but that kind of figure much more than he respects democratically elected. Politicians. We, we saw this at G7, where he sort of rejected or sort of Canada and 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 Theresa May and uh, the leaders of the other kind of and Merkel and Macron. And yeah. Merkel and Macron. He's much definitely much more comfortable hanging out with authoritarians because they have much better tank displays. Yeah. Um, Although I can't imagine the Queen is that excited to hang out with him. Yeah, but you know the Queen has just sat through some absolutely boring old cobblers in her time. Like just yeah, having to show him around a rose garden ranks pretty low yeah. on the list of incredibly appalling it's things. Possible he and Prince Philip will become best friends. I actually think Prince Philip will. Ha- I, I don't know. I'm entirely basing my reading of Prince Philip's personality on having recently watched The Crown. But I sort of <laughs> think that Prince Philip will probably just look at him and think, "What a twat." Anyway, he might say it out loud. He might. Well, that's the joy of Prince Philip. He really could go either way on that yeah. one. Um, but apart from that, what else is happening in American politics? Going back to the um, ICE and the, the border crisis, uh, Sophie McBain, who's a US correspondent, wrote an amazing piece yesterday, or big last week when the podcast comes out. I'm not sure that the, the <laughs> By the time you day. listen to this, it will have already happened. Um, she has written the piece. But yeah. uh, it's um, pointing out that uh, one thing a lot of the outrage has, has missed is that this is not entirely a brand new Donald Trump phenomenon. This was a, a program... Um, ICE itself as an agency was founded in 2001 after 9-11. It uh, was greatly expanded its its powers under Obama in 2014. Um, and uh, Sophie has, has um, done a deep dive into the oldest detention center for housing, family and, and child and migrants and asylum seekers while they're processed and sometimes for years and years on end. And it's, uh, it's both horrifying now and it's been horrifying for a really long time. These are 
one uh, of the lawyers uh, who who spoke to who represents some of these children said that the uh, the water is uh, dangerous to drink, um, that the guards are given bottled water to come to work, but the migrants being housed there, including infants and nursing mothers, are forced to drink this sort of dirty water that's coming through the lead pipes. There's all kinds of, of allegations of abuse that go on. And it's it's just been a really horrifying situation for a long time. But I think what Trump has done is, is made made the issue become forced. So people are really outraged about something that they maybe should have been outraged about the whole time, but it, it's really come to the, the fore of, of the political I hate the word discourse, but it's come what to people the being kept in cages, like all, all these chain link kind of boxes pre Trump, then? Um, so the, the cages uh, seems like that's uh, because there's been a massively expanded number of, of uh, migrants being housed. I think it's gone from, I think at the beginning of Trump's term, there was an average of 2,000 uh, migrant children being held, uh, children and families. That's gone up to about 12,000. So uh, I think what, and the tent city that, that's been built uh, in. Tornillo, Texas, is essentially an overflow centre. So they're, they're still being housed by the same agency under the same rules. There's just more of them now because of the um, zero tolerance edict that, that Trump made at the beginning of uh, last year. And the other big piece of political news from America this week is the Supreme Court's ruling on the Muslim travel ban, or, or as they ruled, not a Muslim travel ban. Mm. Right? They ruled that it wasn't discriminatory because it isn't specifically targeted at a, a particular religion. It's it's targeted by country. And someone did a great tweet yesterday that said, you know, they're going to make this ruling and it's going to, you know, my prediction is they'll do this ruling saying it's not a Muslim travel ban um, and therefore it's not discriminatory. And then two hours later, Trump will tweet, great news on the Muslim yeah. travel ban. Except at that point, it won't matter because what fundamentally what the Supreme Court uh, in, in a uh, quite a tight majority, it was five to four, I think. Uh, but what they ruled was that it doesn't matter what the intention of the law, the, the law can be racist you know, fruit of the poison tree doesn't apply here. It's essentially what this precedent sets. So Trump can set out the law from a place of, of racist intent. But if the law itself and and with its travel ban, it's gone through three iterations, it has been kind of sanded down. And essentially what the, the justices decided, the majority of the justices, was that if there is a way of reading the law in a non-racist way, which I think they added Chad to the or one one South American country to the banned list, so it wasn't a specific Muslim country's ban, which is essentially now means that Trump can say, I want to do this racist thing, and as long as the law as written can be interpreted either way, that's no longer un- that's unconstitutional. That's fast. I think, as I understand it, Sonia Sotomayor, who was the first Hispanic uh, dissent judge appointed to the court, appointed by Barack Obama, has written an extremely mm-hmm. fiery dissent on, on the subject, as you might imagine. But the other thing, obviously, that brings up is I saw a great tweet, I think, actually from Ben Rhodes, um, Obama's former foreign policy advisor, that, you know, he said, we're talking about the lo- loss of civility in American politics. There's been this big story all week about how Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press spokesman, woman, was refused a, a dinner at a red hen restaurant in Virginia. Yeah. Now the thing is, everyone keeps saying the red hen is. I'm I'm, I'm presuming that red hen is a well known chain. No, this is it's quite a it's a small individual artisanal uh, restaurant selling uh, fresh uh, fresh goods from the Shenandoah uh, mountains. It seems quite. Trump tweeted about it uh, a few days later. But she she piled in way. and kind of and 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 this is the thing I think is sort of fascinating. So she said, you know, she'd been refused service. This was 
terrible and hostile and blah, blah, blah. And then some, someone said, well, that, you know, actually you tweeting about it is, you know, is, is yeah. probably going to lead to this place being with, um, hit with threats of firebombing. They're going to have yeah. to sort of send someone around. And then, yeah, then the president uses his, whatever it is, 18 million Twitter followers to also lamp in against them. But the point that Ben Rhodes made, we said, we said, we talk about the loss of kind of civility about kind of, you know, these norms of polite society. Those were lost in America when Republicans blocked Obama's Supreme Court nominee pick Merrick Garland mm. for a, an entire last year of his presidency in order that they could wait until Trump was elected and then they got in Neil Gorsuch, who's clearly, as we saw yesterday, vote is, you know, is is extremely important. And I think that's a really fascinating argument to unpick is that why how the right in America is so hung up on politeness mm. and the idea that you would be impolite to Sarah Sanders is somehow held up as a kind of more greater you know greater crime than taking children like ripping away telling parents that their children are going to go off for a shower or a bath and then 20 minutes later when they go why aren't they back to go ah psych that you actually you'll be lucky to see your children ever again is somehow not regarded as impolite right that yeah. I, I find that absolutely fascinating as a as a piece of discourse but it's it's also it's also amazing how how not new this is i mean in a way american discourse has never been civil right i mean from the you know, beatings of, of civil rights protests. I mean, the civil rights movement was, in a way, the the kind of similarity in, in the name of that is telling because, you know, that was an uncivil age. People were opening fire on, on marches. People opened fire in, on uh, student protesters against the Vietnam War in Kent State. In, people were being lynched in, people know, were being in the lynched. early 20th people century in America. Murdered. There, there has never been an age of, of civility in in discourse, and and it's just a kind of a dishonest tool by by the party in power to try and say it's it's do as I say, not as I do. Right? That's that's essentially what they're trying to, to. I was also thinking about this as a fundamental piece of asymmetry. So as I mentioned at the top last week, I went on a tour of um, Israel. I went to some. I went to Tel Aviv. Went to Jerusalem. But I also went into the occupied territories. So I went into Bethlehem. I went into Ramallah. And in Ramallah, we met a theatre group who actually are in favour of um, BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, which I personally, I, I'm not. But what they, one of them was saying, uh, a young Palestinian guy was saying was he went and did a, participated in a programme, I think it was in Canada, but it was was run by MIT. And it was one of these coexistence projects. So there was also a young Israeli guy on that. And the, and the Israeli guy said to him, like, you know, why are you always so angry? Like, I don't even think about the Israel-Palestine conflict. You know, I, you know, why, like, kind of this, like, why are you so obsessed with it? And it, it struck me very much the asymmetry of the, the powerful, like the people who are holding the cards in that situation. You know, for the vast majority of Israelis, the status quo is, it's not pleasant. It's not what they would want, but it's bearable. And there is a far greater you know, proportion of people in Ramallah for whom the status quo is not not bearable. And that's a similar thing I think that you see in America, right? Where you can you can basically say to the other side, why are you so mad about this? Why are you always going on about this? And I see it a lot where um another you know to kind of spark off random examples, Jesse Singler, writer for The Atlantic, wrote a long piece about children who say that they're trans- transgender and how you should deal with them, whether or not you should be watchful and waiting, whether or not you should immediately affirm, you know, their their sense of self. And someone did a, a comment that was like, why is Jesse Single so obsessed with transgender issues? And it's like, well, he's a reporter with a specialist subject, right? But there is always this kind of, you know, why, why do you even care about this that is is used as a kind of deflecting tactic to stop people having conversations you don't want them to have? Yeah. And, and certainly civil discourse. The, I mean, there's there's been no more uh, sort of polite protest in America than uh, Colin Kaepernick and, and the NFL players quietly taking a knee during the national anthem. Right, right which I mean, is how, literally all they do is they just yeah. they kneel down during the national anthem and rather than standing not good for it. And that's for the American right. So, so it's that gives the lie to this whole. It's about 
it's just about politeness thing. They just want to silence voices on the left. But in a way, what that's kind of doing is, and and I think uh, Alexandra's victory in uh, in the New York primary last night kind of is a sign of this, that you're pushing the left towards these kind of, in, in what I think is a, is a good and healthy way. But um, you also see, you know, people calling for, there was um, the uh, Nazi, neo-Nazi guy who was punched and, and set off this whole hand-wringing argument about whether it's okay to punch Nazis. But, this but is I a white supremacist Richard Spencer. Spencer, yeah. Yeah. At, at around the same time, the same weekend, in fact, that a white supremacist ran over a woman in a car at the yeah. at the protest and killed her. Right? Yeah. So, the hair. yeah. So, so you have a complete, again, a complete asymmetry of like. Though I think that was that was at Charlottesville, which was in uh, late summer. Was Spencer was punched on inauguration day? I think. Okay. I, I my my recollection was those two events happened weirdly in the sort of similar I, kind I of think news someone cycle. Someone else was also. I think Spencer might have been punched again, actually. I mean, I can I can see how that is a regular hazard for him. Um, yeah, I think it's those kind of discourses about civility really fascinating. And um, the New Yorker has got, has got a piece in this week about Berkeley, the university in California, and how much it cost them in the end three million dollars to host a kind of a, basically a press conference by Miley Yiannopoulos because they were so determined not to hand him the victory of saying I've been barred. Mm. He got um, invited by a kind of tiny student society of about I think between about five and thirty people, it's and just then a quote unquote free speech week yeah exactly right and he put he said that steve bannon was going to appear and steve bannon didn't and, appear to know anything about as it well uh yeah and pamela geller barred and it turned out they hadn't offered her enough money so she had turned it down and then turned around and and tweeted that she had been barred i bar myself from a lot of things because people don't <laughs> offer me enough money to do them or i just fundamentally don't want to do them but this is i think this is all part of the same kind of thing about a sort of desire to be particularly on that bit of the American hard right, to be seen, to feel oppressed mm. and to feel that people are kind of, if, and to represent any kind of knockback that you get as being equivalent to systemic racism or sexism yeah. or whatever it might be. And it's difficult for them because they, and I don't think anyone really, certainly a, a lot of the reporting we've seen come out uh, um, in, in places like Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, no, none of them really expected Trump to win. Certainly, Trump himself didn't expect to win. So now, in a bit, in, in a way, they're the dog that caught the car, right? They they're still have the the attitude of an insurgent oppositionary force who just also happen to be controlling the administration of both houses of Congress, and they have no idea what to do with themselves now. They still behave as if they're being they're the oppressed minority, whereas in fact they control all all the. Right, which just means that they, they fundamentally don't want to do politics. Yeah. They don't want to do the hard well, They don't want to do governance. Yeah, right. Legislative grind of actually trying to make people's lives incrementally better in, you know, by, through legislative and um, systematic means. What they want to do is just have, basically have a massive op-ed column. Yeah. <laughs> the condition of modern Bannon, life. Bannon, who, who won the presidency, still considers himself a, um, a sort of a, a Leninist outsider. Yeah, that is a very strange um, quirk of modern life. The fact that everybody wants to be out on the outside. And I know as journalists, this is a kind of deeply hypocritical thing. Mm. Why does everyone want to be on the outside just complaining about stuff rather than getting on and doing it? But, you know, I sort of see that as a protected characteristic of journalists, right? That's what we're for. And that's why we, you know, we don't, I don't think, you know, shouldn't accept honours, shouldn't do, you know, we shouldn't become, try as much as possible not to become part of a system. Mm. They have because they that their 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 function is completely different. Except Bannon's gone completely rogue now because he is now spending most of his time trying to unseat more 
quote unquote moderate because none of these people are really that moderate at this point but he's he's trying to unseat moderate republicans more than he's trying to unseat democrats so he was the the big uh, spat he had with the administration obviously last november was that he was supporting roy moore whereas the trump trump and the administration supported luther strange who would probably have won that race because he wasn't a credibly accused child sexual predator but um Right, Roy Moore had been like banned from shopping malls. Banned from shopping malls, yeah. Because people were so worried about his tendencies. And Whereas Luther Strange just merely laboured under having the name of a supervillain. Yeah. Which is, a, a, you know, in America is almost a plus these days. And, and the same thing happened in the primaries uh, last night where Bannon was supporting um, in uh, Staten Island uh, Michael Graham, whereas the Trump administration was supporting his opponent, whose surname is Donovan. I can't remember his, his first name. Actually, I actually haven't checked to see what the, what the result was in that race. Oh, well, we can, someone can probably write in. Or you could just, you know, Google. But the midterms are coming up. Um, how do you see them playing out? So it, it certainly does feel like there's, there's a, people are talking a lot about the blue wave. Um, the uh, Virginia elections last year went, uh, swung heavily for the Democrats. The Pennsylvania 18th district, 20-point swing to the Democrats. On, on the other hand, first of all, I and everyone else have been completely burned doing anything that sounds like making predictions uh, uh, over the last couple of years. But also, there's still no group of people on the planet who could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory quite like the, the Democratic Party. On that unpleasant note, thank you very much, <laughs> Nikki Wolf. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Yes, you're so much more enthusiastic about it than uh, than Stephen is. <laughs> Although um, we did have a listener write in and complain that they find that bit annoying. So sorry to that listener. But uh, we're not going to... I mean, you did li- they phrase it as a question? You literally... No, they didn't, unfortunately. You literally can't make us. The question this week is, what's annoying you most, Nikki? Well, I've been reading... And it came out a while back, so it's not a brand new... Uh, hot off the presses book review, but I've been reading Homer Deus, uh, which was the sequel to Sapiens by... Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari. And it's it's just not very good. He keeps talking about the youth of today not keeping diaries, which... Uh, right, they have blogs now, that's what... They, oh, no, well, like Live Journal was all yeah. diaries, or, you know, Twitter is like a lot for, for, for you people as a diary. Yeah. People and, and certainly people, record a lot of text about their lives, or video diary, like YouTube. I, yeah, I think, I think, as, I think the to sort of in terms of keeping track of, of their daily lives and thoughts. It does not feel like that's something that, that the current kind of youth, gen- I mean, I, even the phrase the youth of today is, is a red flag. But he also insists the entire way through the book on calling the Internet of Things the Internet of All Things, which... Is, is that a point about his belief that everything will eventually be a smart whatever, like a smart toaster and a smart kettle and a smart, you know, hob and a smart... But his his wider point about that and, and is to make it sound like this kind of sinister sort of singularity point that like it, it sounds much more threatening right when you when you talk about the, the possibilities of the internet of all things 
It's much I mean, I think the Internet of Things is generally quite a bad thing. Yeah. Because, for example, like people get smart locks and then the Wi-Fi goes down and then they can't unlock their house anymore. That's bad. Yeah, or Um, if North Korean hackers get into your fridge and your milk goes off. Fair. No, I mean, um, Cory Doctorow used to have an example about what would happen uh, to your smart thermostat if the government during a cold winter decided to turn all the dissidents, you know, thermostats down. Like, you could die of cold in your sleep. Like, the the possibilities were really screwing quite majestically with lots of people at the same time. Baby monitors that were recording stuff. And also, because none of them have got any really decent security, you can turn them into botnets. There was an unbelievably terrifying demonstration a hacking conference in Las Vegas last year where a hacker in 35 seconds flat broke into the computer system controlling the autopilot system on a, I think it was a Tesla, the kind of self-driving, it's somewhere between a self-driving car and and cruise control. This is the thing where someone was watching a movie and went and it mistook a, a lorry crossing the road for the sky and went straight under it and entirely decapitated him, um, to which Elon Musk said, well, actually... Uh, statistically, it's still safer, which is not what you say after. Ninety nine percent of people who use our cars haven't yeah. been decapitated. Like, why aren't we talking about them? Yeah, it's, it's that whole thing of, um, and it's the, the wider sense of it. And there's a lot of uh, rationalist academics, a lot of whom my brother has got very into recently, like Sam Harris, um, and I think it's Stephen Pinker whose point is that, like, and it's another well actually. Finance is decreasing. That's yeah, Stephen things Pink's in general are much better at the moment. Which is, again, and, and George pointed out this great phrase that Stuart Wood used to use, which was about immigration, which is, voters don't live their lives in the macro. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very good summation of, you can say all you like, well, actually, violence is, but if you're in South Sudan currently, or Syria, that's not an enormous comfort to you as you pick up your, you know, last few remaining belongings and try and, and, and head for an internally displaced persons camp. Yeah. So, so James, James, the, the pub the other night made the point that it's, uh, this would be James Ball, James formerly Ball, yeah. of uh, Guardian and BuzzFeed. Yeah. Um, the, you go to someone being mugged and they're sort of being stabbed 15 times. You're like, well, it may make you feel better to, to realise that you're actually six times less likely for this to happen to you. But it well, still happens. Yeah, right. So exactly. So Okay, so you're annoyed about um, Homo Deus. Are you going to carry on finishing reading it? Or are you a person who jettisons books halfway through? Uh, I habitually don't jettison books halfway through. I actually just finished it. And, and the annoyingness ramps up towards the end when he starts talking about... Um, it's, it's all very techno-futurist. And I spent a year uh, reporting out of Silicon Valley, at the end of which I went to Burning Man. And had quite enough of techno-futurism to a certain extent. The idea, and Elon Musk is the, the kind of plus ultra of all of this. But so the this idea is the guy that, who founded PayPal and he was... Um, yeah, it was one of the eBay mafia. Yeah, I was going to say him and Piero Moggia, who now funds The Intercept. Yeah. Yeah, so he made an enormous amount of money, which now he's put into Dragon X, his space travel company, and also Tesla, his electric car company, which, you know, he... And also the Hyperloop, which I think Alex Hearn at The Guardian is obsessed with whether or not that will ever happen and why wouldn't you just just build more buses, just, build yeah. a church, you build a tube. But it's but living in San Francisco is is uh, really kind of edifying in this kind of way because you've got these people saying, you know, we can build this uh, train that'll take you from Los Angeles to San Francisco in, in 35 minutes or whatever. But the streets of San Francisco are sort of filled with tent cities of, of homeless people. They can't solve even the basic problems of, of civic governance in their own backyard. And, and but this yet, kind of is another version of the disease that we were talking about before, right? Which is people who don't want to do the bit where you actually levy taxes on local businesses and people and use it to pay for civil infrastructure. What they want to do is, I want to go to the moon. Yeah, and and the same thing just happened with Amazon in uh, uh, Seattle where they Amazon lobbied to and successfully lobbied to block uh, 
new uh, business tax raise that would have uh, would have been aimed to address the uh, homelessness problem in Seattle, which has a similar problem. Because a lot of the cities on the west coast of the U.S., cities in in the middle, used to solve their homelessness problems by shipping all their people on a bus out out west, basically. But there's just not. Every time one of these cities that's dominated by a big tech industry tries to levy new taxes on that industry to help it solve its problems, they just get completely mm. blocked. Because those, those problems are too boring. They're yeah, not, and and Elon Musk himself, having having spent, and there's an argument that, this, that they needed a, a test payload anyway, but having quite publicly spent a lot of money um, shooting a, a a Tesla car into space, um, has just laid off ten percent of the Tesla workforce, which is not a great look, whichever way you kind of slice it. Yeah, I, I find that whole culture absolutely fascinating because it's it's got such a specific, you know, they call it the California ideology, right? It's got a, there's a specific kind of guy that most, you know, they're often from the same kind of couple of places. I think, I mean, Elon Musk is slightly different because he's originally South African, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, they, they have a very similar outlook. They have a very kind of, yeah, like techno-libertarianism, right? They sort of just, yeah. they believe that either everybody's... Peter Thiel, especially. Yeah, like got a, who, Peter Thiel, who once wrote a thing about seasteading, about how he wanted to build an island in the middle of the sea so you wouldn't have to obey, you know, international waters, so you wouldn't have to yeah. obey labour regulations. And who and, funded the uh, the lawsuit that killed Gorka and who also is rumoured to have injections of uh, teenagers' blood in order to keep him youthful. I think he's denied the teenagers, but I think that was the one that pushed him far enough to kind of go... I'll cough to the the, yeah. the island in the sea. For legal purposes, we can't say that uh, Peter Thiel gets injections in teenagers' blood. No, no. I'm yeah, maybe slightly older. But he definitely blood. does. He doesn't. No, officially he doesn't. <laughs> um, the thing that's really been annoying me is um, a kind of slightly wider one, but related to what you said actually, which is the way that Brexit has absolutely paralysed politics and the way that it is impossible to get uh, any other subject to get any proper oxygen. This week, Rory Stewart, as, who's a politician I admire in a lot of ways, who's now a, a prisons minister, was up in front it's of a select committee. He walked committee. across Afghanistan. He did, yeah. And, he's, and, and, and also his constituency, which is really quite far north. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so very, two very admirable things. Um, I don't think we can compare Scotland with that. To Cumbria, also. no, probably not. Um, no, it's not Scotland, is it? It's yeah, Cumbria. Right. It's the, yeah, it's the borders, um, Penrith. But he, you know, he admitted that the uh, probation contracts under guess who, Chris Grayling, friend of the podcast, oh God. Chris Grayling, had been underpriced and was simply undeliverable, and they're going to have to renegotiate um, a, a, a significant number of them. You know, at the same time, consistently problems with um, our prisons. The prisons inspector all the time is, is is going into prisons, finding really uh, overcrowding, unsanitary conditions. They've just scrapped ideas for for women's community prisons. Now, the vast majority of women who are in prison are for non-violent offences. You know, short sentences for women are incredibly disruptive to lives, particularly those who have care responsibilities. We know that a huge number of women in prison are of themselves victims of abuse. Um, so, all the kind of any kind of idea that the prison state is getting better is now, I, I think, fully dead. But, you know, can you get any attention to that? It's so hard because the only stuff that's going through this legislative session, really, apart from Heathrow expansion, and we all think, well, what's the point of that? Because Heathrow expansion's probably got another 20 years of arguing before any kind of creeps any closer to actually happening. You know, is, is the EU withdrawal bill. We haven't even seen a, a date yet for the domestic violence bill, which was a kind of other flagship legislation. And, uh, you know, as a reporter, commentator on this stuff, I find that really different. You've got two 
very divergent situations in Britain and America. In America, stuff is happening all the time, too much stuff to cover. No sooner is one outrage happened, then we're on to the next one. Mm. And actually, it's just a blizzard. And trying to pick out what's important versus what's shiny and new is the kind of really hard thing, I think, there. Here, you've got the other opposite problem, which is you've got loads and loads of grinding, endless wrangling and bureaucracy and internal debates about stuff and trying to give people a sense of not just don't switch off like this stuff's actually really quite important and and also given the the press has fallen into such partisan lines along brexit brexit i find it very difficult to kind of keep my ballast and i, I do i you know because i think the brexity papers are so ready to call any kind of grumpiness about from business project fear that maybe i'm i, I worry i'm kind of being sending myself in the opposite direction i think yeah. it's and fundamentally airbus saying that they were, right that they're putting out a very sober assessment about the fact that even a soft Brexit they think will have some impact, but WTO terms will lose them a billion pounds a week in, because their supply chain is spread out across Europe. And it's very difficult to find people that you trust and people who appear to have stayed sane so on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, I think mm. it's really interesting to see the way the rest of quite a lot of the rest of the American media that I follow is turned against the New York Times, for example. They are really kind of quite hated um out there but also huge and putting a lot of money in you know they're kind of unavoidable yeah some parts of them don't help themselves as well i no. mean the, the atlantic hiring kevin williamson who's the the guy who said that um women who have abortion should be hanged yeah um as it's this weird thing of, of american media that they seem to have to have this but the american uh, left, cnn does it as well the american liberal media is really hung up on the idea that you should have a breadth of voices mm. which is not something that fox news particularly yeah, troubles no, it's itself not something the opposite it's, it's too civil if anything yeah which so yeah so it is an asymmetry again okay that's good so you're annoyed by a book that you've just read i'm annoyed by existence <laughs> that's a nice note to end the podcast on thank you for joining me nikki thank you for having me You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Ose, and my co-presenter for this week, Nikki Wolf. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not sign up for a subscription or at least register on our website because Nikki needs new shoes. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.